this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think pregnancy is a gauntlet. You know, it, we can't expect it to just go well. We have a lot of medical advances that allow us to do it without dying these days, but it's just, it's not an easy process. I've seen some of my healthiest friends have the gamut of pregnancy complications. I feel like if you enter with lower expectation that way, you know, you're healthy, everything may not go perfectly, that helps. I think just managing your own mm. expectations. And then I would also say it's more wonderful than I expected. I thought that it would be like a handicap to my career. It's not. I think it's made me a better IR. I think it's made me a better doctor. It's made me a more multifaceted human. So I'm really grateful to my little boy for that. As far as timing, maybe try not to rush yourself. And it's so individual, but try to learn about the resources that you'll need. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I actually started taking Athletic Greens because you introduced me to them, Aaron. I'd love to know kind of what you've thought about it so far. Yeah, so I started taking it after my, my trainer told me about it. He uses it for recovery, and he says he sleeps better. And he's got one of these. He actually gave me one. It's called a Whoop. It's kind of like a smart watch. Have you seen one of those before? No. What? What's that? It measures your sleep at night. It's pretty accurate. It's crazy accurate, actually. Oh. I guess this is a plug for Whoop as well. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he was showing me like his charts of like how he sleeps better at night with uh, taking Athletic Greens. And so I thought that was super interesting. And then Kieran and I met the Athletic Greens people at Podcast Movement, and I got some free samples. And that's sort of where it started. You introduced it to me at a point in my life where I was on a no-chew diet. And so one of the things that I was struggling with was how to get enough nutrients in my diet. And Athletic Greens was a great solution for that. You take it once a day, you take it in the morning, you basically chug this, what, eight to 10 ounce bottle of it um, that you mix every morning. And when you're doing that, you absorb 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. And I did notice a difference when I started taking it. I felt like I had more energy. I felt like I was a little bit more focused. I make the athletic greens, which takes about 10 seconds. I make coffee and then I chug the athletic greens on the way to work. When I wake up in the morning and I drink a lot of fluids, I just feel better throughout the day, right? Yeah. It's just, it's another vehicle to get a lot of water in your system. I agree. I think the morning is the best time to drink it when you feel like you're drinking a smoothie almost. And it's very lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it abides by all those rules. Uh, so that, that's the other nice thing. I'm not any of those things. I like to eat anything. <laughs> you, like all, you like to eat all the things? I'd like to eat all the things. <laughs> so to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash backtable VI. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash backtable VI to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Treating peripheral arterial disease can be challenging, especially cases with narrow lesions or complex anatomies. Medtronic's new FDA-approved Impact 018 drug-coated balloon is a low-profile DCB engineered to cross tight lesions in the SFA. 
Impact 08 DCB uses the same drug coding formula as the market-leading Impact Admiral DCB. It's compatible with the 018 guide wires and comes in 130 centimeters and 200 centimeters catheter lengths, giving physicians the option to treat via radial or femoral access. Discover more at Medtronic.com slash 018. Now, back to the show. This is your host, Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. Our topic today is pregnancy as an IR attending. Our guests for this episode are Dr. Barbara Hamilton, private practice IR in Palm Springs, and Dr. Arthi Luhar, academic IR at UCLA. Barbara and Arthi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Lovely to be here. So let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about timing. When during your career did you decide to have a child and why did you choose this time? Arthi, let's start with you. Thanks for asking. It was something my husband and I had always discussed. It was really just a question of when was going to be the right time for us. And I decided to do my IR training in a somewhat non-traditional fashion. I actually did a pediatric radiology fellowship prior to my IR fellowship. And that meant that I wasn't committed to a, a final radiology year with a lot of interventional rotations. And so I actually, for my first child, had the opportunity to use that mini fellowship year of mostly diagnostic radiology to kind of just be pregnant. And it was uh, pretty great to be able to sit and not be required to be up and running around in lead for that year. And then after yeah. I did my IR year, I decided to wait at least a year of being an attending so I could really focus and commit myself to my first year as an attending, which is a time of terrifying emotional and technical growth. And then in my second year as an attending, I had decided to become pregnant with my second child. And it was a very different experience uh, in some good ways and some bad. I think there's a lot of really important differences between being pregnant as a, res a resident and an attending, as well as some really Definitely. important differences between being a diagnostic radiology resident and an IR. So they were two really, really Absolutely. diverse experiences. All right. Yeah. No, I um, I love that you bring that perspective. One as a one as a trainee and then one as an attending. It really helps you understand the differences. Barbara, how about you? Tell me a little bit about the timing for yours. For me, the timing was more that I didn't have a partner in place to have a child in training. So it wasn't until I was a fellow. I moved with my boyfriend at the time to a fellowship at UCLA where I met RT. And hey. um, <laughs> So it was a few years later that we actually got married and I I was able to establish my career a bit before we actually had a child. And I felt like that was a really privileged position to have a child from because I was able to build my reputation at that institution before being the pregnant one and <laughs> for like having to ask for any accommodations or ask for anything. <laughs> Honestly, sure. so those first couple of years working. I was just a workhorse and I, I, so I got that reputation. So by the time that I got pregnant and came back from maternity leave, I actually was asked to be chief of um, my IR section. Wow. So that was really earth shattering for me. I thought that would never happen, but if you're in a place where they need a leader and there's kind of a leadership void that can actually happen. And so I guess I'm an anomaly that way. That's amazing. What a great story. <laughs> to share a little bit about my perspective, I had my first child uh, in training uh, right after the core exam, your R3 year, and uh, they gave us like a fair amount of time to study, you know, for the core exam. So I felt like it was a good time to be pregnant. And then I had my second when I was starting my second job out in practice. I actually 
started the job when I was like seven months pregnant. So Goodness. I show up and I'm just this like giant pregnant lady and I'm the only <laughs> one in, woman in my practice. And I'm like, what's up? I'm here to do some IR and then I'm going to go on maternity leave. <laughs> but uh, but no, uh, in both situations, I was I was pretty grateful because I had very supportive a very supportive training environment, and then I have very supportive partners in my current practice. Okay, so I think we hear a lot about uh, management of the pregnancy during the pregnancy, but I want to kind of start from the beginning. Did you do anything differently when you decided to start trying to conceive? Barbara, could I start with you this time? Sure. There's some, I guess, data about this that double letting doesn't actually improve outcomes. It just gives you more back pain. So <laughs> um, I actually, you know, those little, I call them loincloths, but they're like a little square of fabric that hangs around your waist. And so that's what the only thing I really did differently. I hung that around my waist under my kilt. And so with that, I felt I was extra protected. And of course, you know, I see the Alara. So in, interestingly, you, you did say that you, you, uh, you hung it un, under your kilt, so you didn't have to share with anybody that you were pregnant, right? That, that was probably an on-purpose thing. It right? was also just hanging there, so it's probably the sort of thing that everybody <laughs> saw and, you know, nobody else does that. So sort of announcing <laughs> what everybody already knows is like, hey, I'm a female of childbearing age and this could happen. <laughs> <laughs> to the best of us. <laughs> I, I cut you off there, Barbara, but go ahead. What were you saying about Alara? Yeah, maybe. It, so maybe it was semi-discreet, but not very discreet. And, you know, if that little loincloth went missing, I would ask people, you know, where where is it? Have you seen it? Like, I wanted it. I wanted that extra layer. And then, yeah, just always acting with Alara. But of course, it was more front of mind knowing that, like, I could be pregnant any moment when we were trying. Sure. How about you, Arthi? Any changes when you were starting to conceive? Um, I think not a ton of changes in my practice, as I mentioned, at least for my first kid. I was a diagnostic radiology resident. The kind of things that I did were very similar to what I think any person in my position would have done. I went to my doctor. I asked her to run some tests, let her know I was thinking of becoming pregnant. She, you know, suggested I might want a booster for a couple of my vaccines or to check my titers, to check some basic labs, including thyroid levels, really just a little bit of a consultation with my OBGYN at my annual visit. And then just trying to mentally prepare myself a little bit, I think, was the biggest thing. Just the idea that we could get pregnant and not know when it would happen was important because it was really intimidating at that phase in my life to think about how much my life could change, considering it was already going to change with graduation from residency, going to a fellowship. I was in the process yeah. of applying to IR fellowship, really trying to understand how it was going to change my life if I did become pregnant, if I did have a child and how it might affect my future career ambitions. And for me, that was, I think, the most important thing. Once I did get pregnant, there were other things that I did that I'm sure we can talk about in a few minutes. But in terms sure. of just trying to wrap my head around the possibility of of my whole life changing, that was mostly just talking to my OBGYN and trying to accept what was going to soon happen. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't think anything could have prepared me for the difference between being a like a young single person or married person and then managing a, a small human. Just just a totally different perspective there. No amount of counseling or suggestions or stories would have prepared me for this. No. <laughs> and not even seeing other people go through it. It's um, yeah, it's a very different yeah. lived experience. And I think that that's important to realize, uh, especially, you know, during a pandemic and and just how much 
support systems and opportunities have changed. It's just so different, even from having a young child pre-pandemic to having young children during and now hopefully someday soon post-pandemic. Knock on wood. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you kind of... You kind of alluded to this, but did you change your caseload or anything when when you found out you were pregnant? Uh, did you stop doing certain cases? Arthi, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I had seen a wide variety of practice amongst uh, my fellow trainees. I knew people who were pregnant who would not do arthrograms, would step out of the room, not even behind the glass shield for breast localizations where there was minor radiation being used and you had a protective barrier. I did not particularly change my practice. In part, that's because at the behest of my mother, who is an anesthesiologist and like a true anesthesiologist, is convinced that radiation from the ORs is the reason she has osteoarthritis in her knees, um, <laughs> basically forced me to make her feel better. So I emailed our radiation physicist and asked him about what he thought I should do. And he was like, look, the radiation to your fetus is going to be negligible. I can get you, wow. uh, you know, I can get you a dosimeter. It basically requires that you officially declare your pregnancy. But honestly, like Barbara said, just wear lead, be smart, use Alara, and you'll be fine. And so that made me feel a lot better. And it was a really important year, I think, in terms of not only learning everything I could, you really start to feel the pressure of graduating, but also in terms of trying to really decide if I was going to do an IR fellowship. And so I really wanted to take those opportunities so I could make that decision because I was in the process of actively deciding. And I felt if I didn't actively participate in procedures that might require radiation, that I was limiting my ability to make an informed decision. That is so proactive of you that you reached out to the radiation physicist. I'm really impressed. <laughs> How about you, Barbara? Did you change your caseload or avoid certain cases when you found out you were pregnant? No, I didn't. And I actually had a miscarriage before my successful pregnancy. So, you know, they each had a little different character as far as the degree of nausea. And so the only thing I changed really was like sometimes I would sit down for a thyroid nodule or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, something I would never normally do. I was not. Yeah. I'd gained maybe a pound, but like I needed to sit down because I think maybe just a little bit of hypotension or a little bit of nausea related to the pregnancy. It made me feel better to just like when I could sit down, I would and not having any qualms about that. You know, like <laughs> we stand for a living. We don't need to prove anything. Yeah. We're making a human. So if you can sit down, it's okay. <laughs> and then just, yeah, being in private practice where I am in particular, like there is not necessarily anyone to just jump in and do that case for you. Not that it would have changed how I felt. I just, you know, if you're the IR at that institution that day, you just do what walks through the door. How about you, Allie? Well, I struggled with this and I reached out to a lot of uh, a lot of folks that I knew who had been pregnant and kind of asked them what they did. I spoke to uh, one of my friends who said that she stopped doing the Y90s during her pregnancy, which I, I get why you would do that. You know, there's also um, there's a black box warning for pregnancy for kyphoplasty because of the cement, but kind of looked into that and it didn't really seem legit. So I kept doing those. I think the only thing I really avoided when I was when I was in my first trimester was um, I stopped doing elective EVARs. So I asked, I just asked my partner, the other guy who did EVARs in my practice to do those. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge change for me because I mean, I wasn't doing a high volume of them or anything, but there weren't any situations where I was working and I said, oh, uh, we can't do that case because I'm pregnant. There's also, you know, there's there's also uh, exposure risks, right? So there's certain pregnant there's certain pathogens that pregnant women should not be exposed to. 
Did you all have any interactions where maybe there was a TB TB positive patient um, that you couldn't do a case on or something similar like that? Luckily, no, that didn't come up for me. Yeah. It is true, though. You are like the only IR at that hospital, right? And so whatever comes your way, you got to do. You can't, you know, call your partner who might be at a hospital an hour away to come do like a five-minute case. I was just going to say that we did once have a consult on a patient who had a specific virus that pregnant women are not supposed to be exposed to. And so in that case, my nurse practitioner who knew I was pregnant was like, don't you dare come near this patient. I'm going to go do the consult. (laughs) But in general, um, mostly just an N95 and being careful and limiting interaction with any patient on contact or ISO for any reason, trying to just do as much as I could to really, truly uh, honor the precautions that we were told to have. What was the virus out of curiosity? I can't even remember. Okay. We have a large HIV population where I work. So like just avoiding needle sticks in general, that was my strategy. Just like, don't get. (laughs) Good good idea. I knew it would be like an anxiety thing more than anything. I didn't think I was actually going to harm my baby by doing that. And then the other thing about what we did differently, like once all the staff had caught wind of the fact that I was pregnant or I announced, I guess, officially then um, they were very protective. So whether that's that's such a good point, whether it came to exposures to like pathogens or, you know, they're kind of protective that way anyway, like they'll say high five, like it's code, like nobody knows that that means HIV. Um, (laughs) But it's like, yes, I was planning on not sticking myself, but uh, they were also protective, (laughs) like rolling in the, you know, bringing in the ceiling mounted shields, which we always use, and then sure. additional shielding. So people were very protective yeah. once they heard that you were pregnant. It was it was quite sweet. I think it's so sweet. Like um, I have a couple of like older female IR nurses, right? They were, they'd like always be bringing me food and water and being <laughs> like, Dr. Behetti, you need to sit down. And I'm like, it's okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> I just, I kind of, I love it because your staff really takes care of you in those situations. And I have like a predominantly female nursing staff and I felt like, like I'm really far away from my family on this coast. And I felt like I had family around me because I always had somebody looking out for me. That's beautiful. I mean, that was one of the things that really surprised me about pregnancy and then becoming a mother as an IR. I just thought, I, I thought there might be some negative connotation to it or that it would stifle my career or like stymie my career. But really, I just found that it was able to, people started to talk to me who I had never really connected with before, like some people in the department, like some of the secretaries who like, I'd never had more of a passing than a passing word. Really, now they suddenly like wanted to talk to me. So it was like, I love that. It was really interesting. I mean, it was a great point of connection. So I think that probably will hold true for the guys too. It's like when people just feel more brought in, like you're a human, I'm a human, like, oh, I love my grandkids. Like people just want to talk to you all the time once that happens. Well, that's great. So so how did you broach the topic uh, with your IR partners? How'd you tell them that you were pregnant? Barbara, let's start with you. Because I had the initial miscarriage, had like a blighted ovum or something. So I just waited the requisite amount of time before announcing. And so I think it was still pretty early because I did want to give people notice, but I also didn't want to just have another false alarm. And so I I was somewhere in the maybe four month range. So they had plenty of time Mm -hmm. and um, it was pretty well received. I would say that some people there was, I think there was probably a little grumbling in the background that I didn't really have to hear. And what ended up happening is they ended up getting a bunch of different locum providers to come in. And I think they just had to spend a good amount of money to cover me. But 
the beautiful part mm-hmm. was, you know, it was just a group of radiologists. It wasn't really, it wasn't a partnership. It was kind of like everybody was hired. So it was Got less it. skin off everyone's back. It was just like the radiology company at the time, who's, it's a different one now. They had to kind of absorb it with that locum cut that extra cost for all the locums. Sure. And some people had some extra call, but really it wasn't this thing where like I had to pay back call or people were upset or I had to negotiate like part of my bonus or anything like that. That made it a little simpler, but I would say they had no policy on maternity leave. Like there was nothing written (laughs) and HR was um, speaking with them was kind of like having a heart attack. They would use words like termination because it's like HR. <laughs> they would say you're like something yeah. about your benefits are going to be terminated after a certain period of time. So that was a separate. I know. Oh so my long. goodness, that's terrible. If anyone can see Dr. Lou hired, her eyes are rolling back in her head. That's how, <laughs> that's, that's how I'm so it. offended on your behalf. You know, I the head of HR very nice lady with like three kids of her own, and she would be talking to me about termination, and I'm just like, lady. I just couldn't believe it, but I think HR has its own verbiage and that was kind of a separate. I was shocked that they had no maternity policy. Like, and if you're not going to call it parental leave policy, if you're too, whatever, that's too hard, you know, like have a medical leave policy. (laughs) Have, you know, for one, the guy breaks his collarbone, which happened to one of my partners and he couldn't wear lead for many weeks, like have a medical leave policy, but they had nothing. So. I tried to invent the wheel with them. They didn't really want to. So So what did you end up doing? I made my way through it clumsily. But I mean, the good part of the story is no benefits were terminated. And I'm in California. That's part of it. So I feel like everybody sort of has to figure out this whole uh, benefits and leave package by themselves because every state is different. And then every employer is different. And every group is different you're part of a group. So I feel like everybody's kind of reinventing the wheel for themselves as it is. And for me, in California, at least, you know, the standard, everybody's kind of, you're expected to take 12 weeks. And I thought, you know, I just opted to take 10. And for me, that was the right Mm -hmm. number. And I didn't feel any pressure to take less. That's great. Tell me about your experience with both of your kids. I want to know how it was when you told um, your training program that you were pregnant. Yeah, it was two very different experiences. I think as uh, Dr. Hamilton sort of alluded to, uh, one of the first things you want to try and figure out and you feel is your responsibility is scheduling, right? We're so scheduled so far out, particularly in residency where you get a whole year of rotations for you, given to you at the beginning of the academic year. And that's just how it's going to be for the rest of the year. And it's like, how do you change it? It's already written down on someone's calendar. So uh, there's a lot of feeling of personal responsibility about that. And I wish I almost hadn't taken it so seriously. But what I did when I found out I was pregnant at the end of my first trimester and I felt comfortable sharing it with people, I contacted my chief residents and asked them to help me figure out what scheduling changes were going to need to be made in terms of coverage and how I could be as flexible as possible in terms of making sure that must cover rotations and calls, et cetera, were covered. One thing that I wish I had done was that I wish I had then contacted my HR department because one of the nice things about residency is that you have a very specific contract, but one of the bad things about that is what's written in the contract is not necessarily the law of the land. So I was under the impression that I had two weeks, two weeks of sick leave 
two weeks of uh-huh. maternity leave and whatever I could cobble uh-huh. together from my vacation, which given that the schedule had already been set was one week. I took five weeks of maternity leave with my first kid and that was oh, nowhere wow. near enough. But what I Holy found smokes. out later was that if I had asked for something like FMLA, which is an option here in California, I could have taken much longer. I had my own hangups about potentially delaying my graduation because my child was born at the end of April with a June, July graduation date for that year. And I was worried if I took too much time so close to graduation, I would not graduate with my class and I would have to delay my fellowship, which would potentially delay my second fellowship. But I'm pretty sure we would have figured that out if I had actually (laughs) taken those steps, in part because I think our program is very supportive of family leave and personal need. And I just didn't even give them the opportunity to step up. And that is something I have a lot of regret about. It was very different for my second child. I think as we've alluded to, right, there's so many things that can be so different. And one of those things is stage of training. So for my second kid, I went to my chief. I let him know that I was um, pregnant. We'd sort of talked about what that might mean in terms of um, going forward. And he basically said, you tell me what you need and I'll make it happen. I contacted How my- How far along <laughs> were you before you told him? About 12 weeks. Uh, so end of my okay. first trimester was generally when I felt comfortable sharing. And this time I did contact HR and they were very helpful, unlike, you know, Dr. Hamilton's experience. You know, I got a congratulations and here's the benefits and here's the paperwork and here's what you need to do. And here are your options for FMLA and here are your options for baby bonding. And what actually became really helpful about establishing that relationship with HR is that when my second child was born four days before the entire state of California shut down and I had three months of maternity leave set up, I couldn't rely on the childcare I had initially anticipated, i.e. my in-laws mm-hmm. coming to take care of him for a transition period into daycare. And so I had to extend my maternity leave, you know, by hook and by crook. And having communication oh my. with my um, HR department was so helpful. Having already opened those channels of um, communication was so helpful in terms of understanding what I could request. And then I'm very lucky to be part of a large group and they were very flexible about my return date. And I do not take that for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more bodies you have to cover, the the less burden it is on everyone, right? Yeah. That's, it's so true. I mean, just you're so protected in training. And um, I'm actually really surprised that nobody told you to get in touch with HR. Like had any female residents been through it before and Did they talk to you about it or were you kind of the first? I was definitely not the first, but I think I was not as close to the women in training who had gone before me and I didn't ask for as much concrete advice as maybe I should have. I got a lot of great advice from people who had come before me, but maybe I wasn't sort of asking enough questions or it wasn't something that they thought about because... They didn't think it was something that needed to be so explicitly said. I am very lucky that my particular group is also pretty female heavy. And so although there was somebody who had been pregnant before me and had a child before me while in IR, she was no longer actually practicing interventional radiology. She's moved over to the diagnostic side. But she was able to give me some really important advice about going through it as a young attending. And I think I gained so much from those conversations that we had that were ongoing over the course of my pregnancy. And I wish I'd had somebody like that I could have asked earlier about the things I should have done in in training. There were also maybe three or four of us who were pregnant at the time in my final year of residency. And I think we were a little bit of the blind leading the blind. So (laughs) we got into this, you know, we would ask each other questions, but we didn't necessarily have the experience to know the answers to our questions. 
And so I really think reaching out to somebody who has been through it is so important because there's so many lessons you learn along the way. And all you want to do is make it better for the person coming after you. Totally. Absolutely. But it sounds like you're blaming yourself for not knowing or not asking the right questions. I mean, this is, it gets pretty granular. And so I think this is a good opportunity to mention the pregnancy toolkit, which is on the SIR website. And that has some resources and some reading. It's got a bunch of resources compiled in one spot. So if people want to Google that, it's the SIR pregnancy toolkit. But it's just hard because, you know, like baby bonding, I, I didn't understand. I like when I heard of baby bonding, I thought it was the same as that 12 weeks you get. I was like, okay, that's just for people who adopt. Like I didn't understand you could actually take that in addition to maternity leave. And then I was like, oh, or for people listening, you know, if you're in one of these states, like if you're in California, mm-hmm. we both happen to be, you can actually take those 12 weeks dispersed throughout the year. So again, it may not work yeah. in training very well, or you, you know, you can delay your graduation by doing something like that per- potentially. But as an attending, if I was just working for a big group and they could just hire more locums and I don't care about that part, sure. if I just want to maximize time with my baby, then I would have taken that 12 weeks, like kind of spread out all, all, for the rest of the year. And you get benefits for that. You get, you know, a portion of your pay, yeah. which is pretty awesome. It is. I'm in Washington state and our FMLA, it kicks in after a year. So I hadn't been working at my job long enough the second time around to qualify for it. So I ended up just taking, I took three months of unpaid leave to, you know, have maternity leave. And I had to go on leave about a month early (laughs) because of some pregnancy complications. And I was, I was really lucky because I texted my boss on Friday and I said, Hey, I uh, can't go to work anymore. I'm 37 weeks pregnant. And he was like, okay, no problem. We'll cover it. And again, like you, Arthi, I'm in a bigger group. And so we have enough bodies that that wasn't a big deal. But um, I could see if being in a smaller group uh, or being in a less flexible situation, that would have caused me a lot of strife. I also think you just brought up a super important point. I waited a year to get pregnant, not only because it's just really a tumultuous year full of personal growth, but also because I asked on my onboarding when am I eligible for maternity leave? And they said, after you've been here for a year, your benefits like FMLA, in addition to your six weeks granted maternity leave, become available to you. And so that was in the back of my head the entire time when we were talking about having a second child, when would it be? It was instrumental in knowing that was going to affect our timeline. Barbara, did you ask your job about maternity leave before signing your contract? No, I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of it is you don't want to... You don't want to raise concerns, I guess, uh, about yourself. Like, why is this lady asking about maternity leave? Is she planning to have a kid soon? I guess, you know, some people might see that as a red flag. But I, when I was uh, in training as an IR fellow, I'd always try to talk about the maternity leave policies with both genders of applicants. Just kind of, if the person on the other side is the person bringing it up, then there's less pressure to ask about it. Um, So that's one suggestion I would have for program directors is have it clearly posted, um, have that information readily available. Don't make it something that people have to ask for when they're interviewing or applying. Absolutely. Anyone in an interviewing or hiring capacity, that's that's a great point. Just bring it up so that someone doesn't have to ask or feel like they're prying or or announcing, pre-announcing a pregnancy for themselves. Because I do remember when I was considering getting pregnant, when I did ask HR for that information, it was const- misconstrued as like an early pregnancy announcement when it wasn't. 
I think something else really important is our residents are unionized. So one of the ways I felt comfortable asking for this information was by talking to somebody who was not my boss, talking to my HR rep, or if you're in a union as a resident, talking to your union rep, because we as a residency are bound to honor your contract as part of your union. So the person who has the best information on some of your benefits may actually be your residency union. Beyond those protections, I think, you know, some we live in a culture where some people still call maternity leave vacation and they still conflate it with vacation. And, you know, we all know when you're interviewing for a job, you're not supposed to ask about vacation. But for some people, there's like a fine line between the it's interesting. So I still think we have a long way to go as a culture and, um, you know, medicine in particular, probably just being male dominated as it is that, that, you know, this is not traditionally something that is a standard interview question. All right. Back me up, guys. I don't really feel like maternity leave was vacation. Did you guys? (laughs) (laughs) Truth. (laughs) Truth. It's a relief to come back to work, to be honest. You're seen as a (laughs) contributing member of society and not just somebody who wipes up poop and gets cried on and snotted on and slept on and loved and adored. But, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It's nice to have that return to structure in the day. That's why I felt like less than 12 weeks actually worked well for me. And I know yeah. some people say no amount of time is ever enough. And I, I was never one of those people. So for sure. some people listening, you know, if you're worried about that, everybody talks about going to work and just crying in the bathroom, missing your baby all day. I felt like it was a really sweet experience to like, I'm going throughout my day. I'm doing things, you know, accomplishing things for patients. And then I miss my boy and like it was a really sweet feeling. So I thought it was a really nice balance. I know this is a subject for another podcast, but like we should someday talk about the logistics of coming back to work because there are so that many. That is actually that is going to be like the follow up podcast is is yeah, is managing small children. As an oh, I thought we were going to go with pumping in the bathroom because you can't find a closet. Oh, <laughs> That's what I was oh my. Like, <laughs> while you're trying to recover from a delivery. And that's why that's I, how I view maternity leave. It's really, to me, a large part of it is a medical leave. I mean, you're physically recovering. Of course, there's parental leave for yeah. people who become parents in other ways. But for the person who does deliver, it should be a minimum of six weeks for like a vaginal delivery and eight weeks for uh, a cesarean. And I think that's pretty standard. So there's that component as well. Yeah. If anybody's trying to feel guilty about taking a certain number of weeks, you need to physically heal. And then on top of that, if you're considering breastfeeding, that's a whole other learning curve and physical challenge. Oh, yeah. Yes. I don't really want to get into that. <laughs> it's a dark, dark I don't know time about you in guys. my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, hey, did you guys face any unexpected challenges during your pregnancy? Barbara, let's start with you. I know um, you mentioned your miscarriage. I don't know if you'd like to elaborate a little bit more about that. Um, and then I know you had to go on bed rest for your second pregnancy. Yeah, the miscarriage was... Um, you know, I was probably like all IRs everywhere, scanning myself. So I saw a, a little, you know, between cases, just went in to an empty ultrasound room and I saw that little, little bean there with a flickering heartbeat. And then by the time I got to my official ultrasound, there was no one there. So it was kind of, um, that's a difficult experience mm-hmm. that I know is so ubiquitous. And like, Absolutely. I know in the setting of radiation, like people want to blame themselves. And it's, that's not how it should be. There are just so many pregnancies that end in the first trimester. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I was lucky I Thank only you. had yeah. one. I know people have several. Then add to yeah. that the fact that many of us are trying later than 
the average woman to get pregnant that can add complications. And I, so I ended up having with my pregnancy that went well, (laughs) I was able to uh, carry the term, but I was at risk for preterm delivery. I had a short cervix and nobody knows why. Mm -hmm. I never had any, any reason to have that happen. So it was just kind of incidentally noted on an early ultrasound. And I'm really lucky because, you know, I didn't just have an unexpected precipitous birth, you know, halfway through the pregnancy. So I'm super grateful to that sonographer who noticed that day. But yes, so I ended up basically being a teleradiologist for like half of pregnancy. Oh, wow. You strike me as a, you strike me as somebody who doesn't like to sit still a lot. So I imagine that was difficult for you, Barbara. <laughs> Do I look like I'm jumping out of my chair? <laughs> well, you know, we're used to being physical. So yeah, for an IR where I think a lot of us, we do carry lead. Like a lot of us come from a background where we, you know, it's physical work. It is really hard to have someone say, yeah, you can get up to get yourself a sandwich, but you cannot go shopping. You cannot walk around the block. You cannot do any of these things. And and that was in the summer in Palm Springs, California, which if anyone has been here, mm. gets to be 120 degrees. Oh, wow. So basically, I... um that was my own mental challenge. And, you know, there are women who have had it yeah. far worse than me. You know, I had a friend bleed throughout her pregnancy. She's an orthopod. Um, so I wasn't, oh, you know, wow. I wasn't bleeding. I wasn't having any problems other than just knowing I could have a preterm pregnancy. So, but the group was able to accommodate it and I was able to keep working. Got it. How about you, Arthi? Um, any challenges? Yeah, I think particularly for the second pregnancy in terms of just unexpected medical consequences of being pregnant. Uh, Mm -hmm. I got what felt like a fairly routine infection I just couldn't shake. And it really drove home to me the fact that pregnancy is an immunocompromised state. And the thing that was really hard about that was not just like the physical discomfort of having an infection that wouldn't go away, but it was in an inflexible world where, as you have both alluded to, you're often the IR on for the day responsible for whatever comes in the door. It was finding time to go to an emergency room. It was follow-up visits with my doctors beyond my routine uh, prenatal visits. It was getting to pharmacies to get antibiotic prescriptions and getting the, you know, the prescriptions then refilled on a unclear how regular it was going to be basis because nobody wanted to put me on antibiotics because I was pregnant, but I was immunocompromised Mm -hmm. and I had an infection. So I needed to have antibiotics. But how long could that be? Who knows? So it was like literally a week by week basis. I was seeing my doctor every week. And that's not even the OBGYN I was seeing for my prenatal visits or the ultrasounds I was having. And so now I'm in a job where I'm in an academic center and I'm expected to be staffing from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. at a minimum on a day when I'm on IR. And trying to figure out how to incorporate what feels like an exponential increase in doctor's visits and testing and taking medications at specific times during the day when you may be scrubbed in for a three-hour case. And so that, even though I was lucky enough to be functional throughout most of this infection and to not need to take time off of work, it was trying to figure out this bizarre self-care, which is not even self-care. It's keeping myself able to function as a mom and a wife and a doctor who is trying as hard as she can not to take time off of work because I'm about to go on maternity leave in a couple months. Yeah. And that really, I found so frustrating, just the lack of flexibility. Because as we've alluded to, these are medical conditions. And so if you have an infection, 
and you're not pregnant, what are you doing? (laughs) It's not like it's any easier, but our jobs are so set up to have this, you know, lack of flexibility that as doctors trying to be patients, we are terrible at it. And so I just felt all the frustrations, not only of being pregnant, but of being a terrible patient because I was a doctor. And that was like, (laughs) I'm sure you you were a great patient. (laughs) I mean, not really. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds so hard. Yeah. Don't recommend it. I can't. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, like you already had one kid at that point and you were you were probably just pushing yourself to the limit with your job and managing your home life and then have this added issue on top of it probably just felt like so much. Yeah, it definitely really. I'm really thank you for sharing that. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes we don't like to admit when we're overwhelmed, but I, I sure don't. And but it happens. I know having one kid with another on the way, that's just really I, I'm sure your bandwidth was stabbed. And Ali, do you have one kid? Uh, I have two. So I have a five-year-old daughter, and then I have a um, eighteen-month-old daughter. Wow, okay. Yeah, they're they're pretty hilarious. So um, I I definitely faced some challenges during my second pregnancy. I I just started a new job, which had been which was a little bit different than my prior job. It was it's kind of. Um, like covering 10 different hospitals all over the area. Oh my goodness. Um, and <laughs> so just like driving around all over doing cases. Um, and I like distinctly remember um, I was doing a GI bleed at like a small community hospital, like about an hour away from my house. And I was, I think like eight and a half months pregnant. I was like, I, it was like the week before I had to go on leave. And I, um, I was like doing it with staff that wasn't very well trained. And so, you know, I don't know if you guys ever have to, you you all probably don't have to deal with that, but sometimes when you're working with new staff or travelers, they just like don't know what they're doing and then you're doing everything, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I remember like like selecting the GDA and selecting and then all of a sudden the collimation that I put on the screen just like opens totally wide up, like full screen is visible. And I like looked around the room and I'm like, who did that? And then I looked down and I did that. My belly did that. <laughs> so so baby Ani just decolonated my entire screen. And I was about to lose my mind on this new staff. Um, so you just said, just no, a little Lara. Story. We need to see it all <laughs> no, <Lara>. right now. <laughs> She's a hormesis believer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, other than kind of like the standard things of getting used to a new job, just having to be on your feet your third trimester a lot is actually a lot tougher. So I felt like it was a lot tougher my second pregnancy go around, maybe because I was just a little bit older um, or maybe I just didn't have time for it. You know, I did not have the patience I did the first time around. And then, yeah, and then just having to schedule appointments like like you, Arthi, prenatal appointments or other doctor's visits around what the caseload was for the day, like saying, oh, okay, I got an hour between two and three. I'm going to hop over to the to, to the OB center and get scanned and then come back. And just trying to like fit in these these little pieces to try and keep your human alive when, uh, when you're already running at full speed, running at full bore. That was hard. It's a juggle. Yeah. Okay. So what support did you guys have in the immediate postpartum period? I know your your uh, in-laws weren't able to come, Arthi. So what'd you do for childcare? Yeah, uh, that definitely threw my plans for a loop. I am lucky to have family that is fairly local. So our original plan was to 
you know, have our older son go to his daycare and um, maybe the grandparents would be helping with maybe picking him up, dropping him off as needed while I had my younger son at home with me and my husband, who was about to go through the tenure process, was going to delay his parental leave until um, I had to go back to work. What actually ended up happening, at least for the second one, was the pandemic happened. Everything got shut down. Mm -hmm. I no longer felt that we could safely send my older son to daycare, given that we had a neonate at home and a pandemic raging. Sure. And so we packed everything up and we moved in with my parents for the entirety of my maternity leave. And what that meant was that we had two extra pairs handling my rambunctious four-year-old, somebody who could just take him out into a yard, which we certainly don't have in my home here in Santa Monica, and let him just run in circles until he fell asleep. That was really important. And it really uh, required a lot of flexibility and rolling with the punches and appreciating the fact that I have loving local family who are willing to just open their homes, their hearts, and their entire lives to us and letting us completely disrupt everything about their daily life for the next three and a half to four months. And it wound up being a really positive experience. My um, parents are people I cannot express my appreciation for enough ever, (laughs) and for even if I say it every day for every second for the rest of my life. But it was a really tough time for us and one that I'm so thankful was so positive in the end, but really was something I wish I didn't have to problem solve in the moment of having a three-day-old. Sure. (laughs) You're so lucky that you had family nearby. That's just such a blessing. How about you, Barbara? So my experience was just that of having my first and only child so far in an area without any family nearby. So it was more planning when are the grandparents going to come in who, you know, so everybody didn't descend at once. This was (laughs) pre-pandemic. And I just, you know, depending on the relationship you have with your parents, like whether they're more on the overbearing side of the spectrum or less, like you just want them to come maybe a few days later. So that was what we opted for. And sure. so during my maternity leave, was able to heal. And then I kind of got into that role of like, let's find a caregiver to try to, so that my husband wouldn't have to do, you know, 100%. He was, he's like a freelancer. And so, yep, I became the person finding the caregiver and screening and on care.com yeah. every day. Yeah. And um, isn't that fun? Yeah, no pressure. We found the most wonderful people. (laughs) So I found someone actually who ended up not working at the last minute, not working out at the last minute. And that was stressful. But I had the next person who I was very happy with. And she's been with us ever since. So she's actually a woman in the 70s. Yeah. That's amazing. How how old is your kid? You've had the same nanny for how long? Yeah, she's so he's four and a half and she's in her 70s. So during the pandemic, we, that was a whole other issue. We didn't want to be around her. And of course, before the vaccine, there was no way. So that became a different challenge. You know, it was great to have someone with all of her experience. And she's like a very good 70. So she like used to run a daycare herself. She's like, you know, does judo in her spare time and stuff. But so it's just like a very healthy person. But or maybe I'm thinking Tai Chi. <laughs> judo is more hardcore. So we had this great person, but could not use her during the pandemic for fear that we would kill her. Got it. And so that was, yeah. so the pandemic was very hard. Basically just, yeah. I would go to work. Like everyone around the country, our volumes were like so low. So just kind of sit there and warm the yeah. chair a lot of the day. And then when I came home, I just had to 
completely take over for my partner at the time who just, you know, like had been dealing with the brunt of things during the day. So sure. Yeah. So that was interesting when they talk about coming home to the second shift. Like that was the most mm-hmm. whole version of that. Like we could not. And I guess in theory, we could have brought somebody else into the house, uh, maybe someone younger who we didn't have to worry about as much, but we didn't. Yeah. It was, it's hard to just find someone great just like that. Definitely. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Finding good childcare is probably like the hardest challenge of, of being a parent right now, being a working parent right now. And something you really don't realize, I feel like, until you get pregnant, because everybody I knew, oh, we have a nanny. Oh, our child's in daycare. So I assumed that we would be able to pretty easily find daycare or a nanny. And um, the first person I actually declared my pregnancy to that was not my husband or my parents was our local daycare. And I paid $100 for the privilege of being on a wait list that uh, takes most people about six years to get off of. And I did not get off of it. (laughs) And we never anticipated needing to have a nanny. It was just that we were on like so many daycare lists and we just could not get off of them. Oh, maybe, well, we'll be in touch, we'll be in touch. Call me in three months, call me in six months, call me in nine months. Well, in nine months, I'm going back to work. So I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do at that point. And so that was a real unanticipated Uh, stressor in being pregnant and then in early maternity leave was just like, I have to go back to work on X date and I don't know who's taking care of my child after that. You mean in nine weeks, not nine months, right? Oh, whatever. (laughs) I mean, when I was, I literally sent in my daycare forms when I was eight weeks pregnant. And she means like nine months from that. Yeah, nine months from that point. So I had nine months to deliver and then hopefully, you know, to put my kid in daycare at six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. Uh, yes. uh, as yeah. early as they would take him, literally. And we were on we were on so many lists. And he he started daycare at 14 months. So that's how long it took us to get off of one wow. list. Wow. Is out of the like four we were on. <laughs> yeah. And you don't think about the fact that most daycares are like nine to three. Like there are right. day- daycares <laughs> out there where you don't have time to even take a shower before you have to go pick up your kid. It's, sure. It's uh, it's not childcare. It's socialization for your kid, and that's great, and that's important and wonderful. But at the end of the day, like as a working professional, and often part of a two working professional family, as flexible hours are amazing, and long hours are even more amazing. And I feel like finding a daycare that will take your child, that will take your child for enough hours that enable you to work, is such a challenge. And it's almost frustrating that we work jobs where it's not even enough to have daycare. You almost have to have a daycare and a nanny because by the time you finish work, you may not be off in time to pick up your kids. You need a nanny to drop off and pick up your kid so that you can kiss them goodnight before they go to sleep at eight o'clock. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, things that I didn't think about before I had kids. (laughs) It's such a scramble sometimes. Yeah, they'll close at 6 p.m. So if I'm working across the valley, like I have a 45 minute drive. And if there's traffic on the highway or something, I might just make it. I haven't gotten to that point where I'm late, but... I just joke with the staff, like, my kid will need therapy if I stay for this extra case. <laughs> um, but it's like a dollar a minute if you're late. Um, yeah, they have really outrageous fees for if you're late, but I totally get it, you know. I get it, too. And you um, just pay cash to the person who's there. Like, it's instant gratification for them, which is good. <laughs> um, but it is. It's hard. All right. Well, uh, just to wrap this up, do you both have Uh, any advice for trainees or early career IR docs who are thinking about pregnancy? Barbara, let's start with you. I guess my advice would be take it as it comes. I think pregnancy is a gauntlet and, you know, we can't expect it to just go well. We have a 
lot of medical advances that allow us to do it without dying these days. But it's just, it's not an easy process. I've seen some of my healthiest friends have the gamut of pregnancy complications. So just kind of, if you, I feel like if you enter with lower expectation that way, you know, you're healthy, everything may not go perfectly. That helps. I think just managing your own Mm -hmm. expectations. And then, I mean, it's wonderful. So I would also say it's more wonderful than I expected. I thought that it would be like a handicap to my career. It's not. I think it's made me a better IR. I think it's made me a better doctor. It's made me a more multifaceted human. So I'm really grateful to my little boy for that. And um, yeah, advice as far as timing, maybe try not to rush yourself. And it's so individual, but try to learn about the resources that you'll need. So if you if you know that you'll be looking at an IVF journey, there are lots of resources on that. Or if you know, you know, it's like part of it is just having someone to have a child with. And then lots of people sure. are opting to do it themselves these days. So, or, or adopt or go a number of different routes. So I think there's, I think the cliche is there's no perfect time. I've heard that a thousand times from people older and wiser. And that's true. And certainly, you know, it's not required if you're not sure. And if this is not a life experience that you want, I think society kind of pushes us that this is part of our worth as women. But, you know, if it's not something that fits in your plan, then, you know, that's completely valid as well. Or if it simply doesn't work for your body, you know, it may not work out for everyone. Mm -hmm. So best of luck to everybody who's listening. And I hope it goes perfectly. (laughs) How about you, Arthi? Anything you'd like to take Tell the trainees or early career docs. I mean, I really want to just echo everything Barbara said. I think she made some really important points. I think some of the best advice I got was from one of my colleagues, Dr. Scott Genshaft, who has children a few months older than me. And he told me when we were just kind of casually speaking one day over a readout that there would always be a excuse and a reason to put off living my life and that I should not allow myself to take an excuse or a reason to put off living my life. And I am very grateful he told me that because I needed that little push to feel like I could take the time and effort to to take time for me and, and doing something that was for me a really important part of how I saw my future playing out, which was being a parent. So my final piece of advice would just be to not be afraid to ask questions, particularly if you're in what feels like a safe space ask the hard questions, whether it's to somebody who's gone through the experience, whether it's to a representative from HR, whether it's to your union rep, whether it's to somebody that you know from the SIR, ask the hard questions because you may feel awkward asking the question, but you may also learn something that makes your future so much more livable. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure having both of you on the show today. I learned a lot. I loved talking to you and learning about your personal experiences. And thanks for sharing what ended up being a a very uh, personal, important conversation with me. What about you, Ellie? What are your parting words of wisdom? What's your advice? I want to hear it. Oh, I don't, I never have wisdom. I just, I just ask the questions. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, uh, for me, the people around you, can make your life easy or they can make your life hard. Amen. So whether you're whether you're looking at a training program or you're looking at a job, get an idea of the culture of the people around you. Figure out what folks do if one of their partners is 
in a tough situation? How do they react? Do you think that they would be supportive of, first of all, of a female IR? That's Unfortunately, there are a fair amount of groups around the country that I don't think would be supportive of having a female IR, uh, even in 2022. Um, and would they be supportive of, of you, you know, living, living the life that you choose um, and having a family and being available for your family? That's all I got. Priceless. That was great. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.